Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Jewish Israelis believe the government and Netanyahu were to blame for the infiltration of Hamas in the massacre, and you know they 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 essentially um, want to see want to see accountability for that. Moments of emotional trauma, feelings of vengeance can drive quite um, imprudent and, and ambitious actions that look less sensible in the cold light of day. Hello and welcome to Behind the Lines, the geopolitics podcast with me, Arthur Snell. In the light of last week's horrific attack on Israel by Hamas, and now Israel's own counter-reaction on the Gaza Strip, I had the opportunity to speak this week with The Economist defense editor, Shashank Joshi. Shashank is a visiting fellow at King's College London War Studies Department and is one of the best informed defence journalists currently operating. So the opportunity to get his insights into what's happening and what's coming down the pipeline in Israel, the Middle East, and even the impact on the war in Ukraine was really fascinating. So I think you're going to find this to be a really informative episode. I hope you enjoy it and thanks for listening. Shashank, welcome to Behind the Lines. Thanks so much for having me on again. Um, We're obviously speaking in the light of terrible events in Israel, and now uh, the Israel-Israeli military is mounting or building up to mount what looks like a major operation in Gaza. Um, Depending on when listeners get to this, that may have already begun. But what's your best understanding, speaking on Friday the 13th, of what is in uh, what is in the pipeline well i think the major development we've just had is of course the israeli uh, request for civilians in gaza to evacuate south and this is really a, a, an extraordinary order because we're talking here about over 1 million civilians about 1 million 1.1 million civilians going south the united nations has said this is um impossible without quite grave humanitarian consequences. And to my understanding, the Israeli military thinks this is going to take a couple of weeks. So I think on perhaps the beginning of the week, middle of the week, I would have said to you that a ground invasion of Gaza of the sort that we saw in 2009 or again in 2014 on a smaller scale is imminent. And I think that's how I described it in the piece I wrote. I think they're now going to try to wait to see if they can push as much of the civilian population out of these urban areas as they can, because their aim on this operation, don't forget, is different to what they've done in the past. And they are openly saying their aim is to obliterate Hamas, to destroy Hamas, treat it like ISIS, uh, root it out. And I think that will require them to do a lot of work in this gigantic subterranean complex of tunnels that Hamas has underneath Gaza. There's about 500 kilometers of it. So, so I would expect a long period of trying to continue with preparatory 
preparatory airstrikes, continue clearing civilians if they can, and uh, and only then sending in forces at scale, because it's going to be very, very messy, as, as we all know. We talk about a million people. I think I think the entire population is obviously two million, and that they've been told to move south. But of course, that assumes that Egypt is happy for them to go there, which is, isn't clear at this stage, is it? No, there's a number of things going on. There's a border crossing in the south of Gaza known as the Rafa border crossing into the Sinai Peninsula. And Egypt has effectively participated in the Israeli blockade for years, although some people can have been able to move in and out of Rafa. That crossing is closed. Uh, it was bombed by Israel a few days ago. And also the Egyptians don't really want to see a large flow of refugees out in Sinai. And that isn't just because they don't want refugees, although that, that's part of the reason. It's also because historically they don't want the Palestinian issue settled as they see it by resettlement of uh, uh, Palestinians in Gaza onto Egyptian land, which is the favoured solution of, of some people in Israel to say, you know, these Palestinians have a home, it's called Jordan and it's called Egypt and they should go there and leave. Um, and so the Egyptians are very wary of anything that leads in that direction. Um, so Right now, they can't go anywhere, although I believe there are fairly intensive talks underway, including Anthony Blinken, the US Secretary of State, and others um, um, in the region to try and explore whether that crossing could be opened, whether there could be some safe passage out. Because, you know, if you displace a million people internally into other parts of Gaza that are being bombed with half the number of hospitals and facilities, the result is obviously going to be a humanitarian catastrophe. It's foreseeable, it's inevitable, and it will be appalling. Yeah. And I think we should talk about that a bit before we go more into the sort of military aspect. Of course, um, this situation in Gaza on the back of the, the sort of horrific massacre that took place in Israel, we had the Israeli Minister of Defense, who it should be noted is not a hardliner. You know, his background comes from a sort of more centrist position in Israeli politics, uh, declaring um, that, you know, all, 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 um, all utilities would be switched off, and we, and that includes water and power. And then he used this phrase that you know if these are human animals, and they need to be treated in in that way. Yes. Um, this is not to judge people reacting to to dreadful horror, but to look at what appears to be a very clear example of collective punishment. And, and we've seen the Israelis saying that they won't switch the utilities back on unless hostages are released. So I don't think one can see that as anything other than a, than a clear uh, example of that. Is, is that. is that something that, that uh, it, we, we can have uh, ethical and moral qualms about it? But does this, do you think this is likely to affect Israel's support in the international community or affect the way they manage the operation? Yeah, I think it will. I think it has to. You know, and I want to say a quick word about the siege because siege tactics and blockades Arthur, as, as you probably know, that they aren't they aren't illegal under international law under some conditions if you prosecute them in a careful way. Um, it, but what there is in international law uh, is a prohibition on the starvation of civilians. That that's a really categorical part of international law. And so, yeah. a, a blockade that is that is really designed to have its effect through the denial of food to the civilian population, even if its ultimate aim is to coerce Hamas or squeeze Hamas, that is illegal. That's a war crime. It's a potential crime against humanity, according to a, a, a very careful legal study I was reading by a, a law professor um, yesterday. And, and I think that that's going to, first of all, uh, that, that's beyond the pale. And I think that that's going to um, affect really affect um, Israel's position. The other thing to notice is that Israel has extremely strong support in the international community amongst the West right now, the yeah. West. Um, so uh, America has said it has Israel's back, it's sending ammunition. Um, no American politician publicly, I think, has said anything other than offered anything other than full-throated support. NATO, NATO as an organization, has said they too support Israel's right of self-defense, though they have insisted it has to be proportionate, which means, uh, and I think we should clarify this for listeners, not proportionate to what happened to them, which is not what proportionality means, but proportionate to the uh, magnitude and nature of the threat posed by Hamas that has been, you know, clearly heightened in the last in the last week. Um, so there's elements of hesitation there, and I think that siege combined with the intense bombardment of Gaza and the effects it's having, along with, on top of that, the, the 
uh, displacement of civilians on such a massive scale is going to cause real disquiet among even Israel's closest friends. And I would, I just think back sometimes to 20 years ago to the um, Israeli operations in the occupied West Bank in 2002, when of course they went in in massive force under Ariel Sharon and the George W. Bush administration at the time, which was a Republican administration quite close to Israel, basically at some point said this is this has gone too far you have to stop now this has to stop and they they put the stop on it and whilst the dynamics in the region have changed somewhat and america's ability to simply you know put the thumbs on allies screws on allies and stop events is no longer what it was i think that if this goes on and drags on and on um the opprobrium is going to affect the biden administration which knows it has offered such full-throated support that it is also on the hook for some of this and and i do think that will have an effect as this goes on yeah absolutely so i think um in trying to examine that question it takes us to what it is israel is trying to achieve and as you outlined um they've they've set as an objective the destruction of hamas its leadership its military capability and even its ability to govern gaza so what what does that mean uh in in practical terms I think this is the, the question to which even the Israeli war cabinet may not have a clear answer. Uh, clearly, you know, the objective of the operation in 2014, Protective Edge, was to go in and destroy some tunnels near the outskirts of, you know, the edge of Gaza. That's easy. I mean, it wasn't easy at all, but it, but it relatively easy. 2009 was a much deeper incursion. But again, like every previous war in Gaza over the last 16, 17 years since Israel left the Strip, it ended with a ceasefire. It ended with a political deal, I think, in almost all cases brokered by Egyptian intelligence, who is the principal conduit to Hamas, uh, which basically said, you've, you've damaged Hamas, you have restored deterrence, to use that Israeli phrase. You know, in other words, that you've, you've shown you're willing to exact a heavy toll for terrorism, and you have... Um, you have degraded Hamas, destroyed rockets, killed leaders, destroyed infrastructure, and so on and so forth. If the aim now is not just to weaken Hamas, but to destroy it, um, I struggle right now to understand how that is done without, an, without a, a prolonged occupation. And I, I think I, I really mean years rather than even months, because, you know, how do you clear 500 kilometers of tunnels? What are they planning to do? You know, fill them up? and systematically go through them? If so, how long will that take to do across the entire strip? And then when they leave, um, Hamas, it does have some support in the population. I, I'm very wary of equating Hamas with the Gaza, Gaza and the, the people of Gaza, because that, that, that is a recipe for collective punishment. But they have support. They are embedded in the social, economic and political fabric of Gaza in terms of mosques, schools, charities, hospitals, and so on. Sometimes to the point where actually they jeopardize, they, they often to the point where they jeopardize the civilian population by turning what would be civilian objects into legally military objects through their presence and their armed activity. But rooting that out, you know, is going to require staying there for a long time. And What's happened is Israel hasn't got the administrative class of people that ran Gaza in the 90s. It hasn't got the IDF, the Israel Defense Forces, of the size that can cope with that occupation and also deal with problems in the West Bank. And here's the big threat, Hezbollah in the north, which has grown dramatically uh, in capability and number of rockets since the 2006 war with Israel. So, my question is, you know, are we just going to see Operation Cast Lead, the 2009 operation on steroids, more degradation of Hamas, more destruction, but ultimately some kind of ceasefire, some kind of deal? Or are we going to see a prolonged occupation to try and destroy Hamas, in which case the question is what takes over then? Absolutely. And of course, the, uh, this, this comes at a point where Israel is very briefly united in horror and reaction at the events of last Saturday, but only, you know, 12 hours earlier was, was at perhaps the most divided it's ever been. And, and the, yeah. one wonders how it could sustain what could be a really sort of costly occupation of a very... Yeah, and, and I, I, just, I just saw a poll um, by the Dialogue Centre which said that four out of five Jewish Israelis believe the government and Netanyahu were to blame for the infiltration of Hamas in the massacre. And, you know, they, they, they essentially... Um, want to see want to see accountability for that so i don't think that 
even with the inclusion of Benny Gantz, a former chief of staff of the IDF and a respected military figure who is an opponent of Netanyahu, even with his being brought into the unity government, um, you know, the, the main opposition party, Yair Lapid's Yair Lapid party, is not in this coalition. They don't have a mandate for a, a five-year occupation of Gaza. They don't have a mandate to keep 360,000 IDF troops, which is, a, you know, what, what is that? Three, four percent of the population. It's 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 sizable. It's you know it's a sizable um, impact on the civilian economy to pull that many young men and women out of out of the economy. They can't do that for years right now. But I am I am cognizant as I say that. You know, I spoke to an expert last week who said the America of September tenth was not the same as the America of September twelfth. They were willing to do things like invade Iraq that 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 were in retrospect you know pretty batshit insane and. I don't know, the, uh, moments of emotional trauma, feelings of vengeance can drive quite um, imprudent and, and ambitious actions that look less sensible in the cold light of day. Yeah, and of course, in a way, that, that analogy of 9-11 is so important because people sometimes talk now about the 9-11 trap in the sense that uh, on one level, you know, you, you could argue that America was resilient. It, of course, the, the horror of the events of that day will go on in, in history. But, but actually, you know, no, no one toppled the American government or sort of collapsed American capitalism just because of of the the, the hideous attacks of nine eleven. But America did get sucked into you know twenty years of warfare in Afghanistan and and the, the, the terrible uh, sort of disaster of the Iraq War. Um, and and on that level, you can argue that that from a from a sort of analytical perspective, the terrorism worked. And so, is 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 there an analytical sort of framework that allows you to see what Israel is you know, stepping towards in this context, and 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 perhaps Hamas is succeeding on some sort of rather rather sinister level? It's hard to say. I mean, if there are some indications that Hamas may have succeeded um, beyond what they expected, the second wave of people who went in through the fence on October 7th, some of them, I'm, I'm told, were sort of privateers, essentially. You know, they were not Hamas affiliated um, and they may have exploited the situation for looting, for for bloodlust as well. Um on the other hand, the IDF now says that Hamas came extremely well prepared for this, and that actually that some uh, I heard one account from the IDF, no less, um, that said they were preparing to hold a strip of land connecting to the southern communities that they massacred and ransacked. Which, if so, is is remarkable, right? This wasn't just a hit and run raid. They wanted to conquer part of Israel. This was a a war of conquest, uh, something that we haven't seen in Israel on in that way since the Yom Kippur War. <clears throat> and that's you know fifty years ago. That's absolutely remarkable. However, whatever the, was the case in terms of their expectations, they must have known. They must have known that the retribution would be massive and and and, and severe. Um, maybe they maybe they didn't quite understand this would be the the biggest mass killing of Jews since the Holocaust and the psychological impact that might have. But they would undoubtedly have known Israel would react. And we know. I mean, Arthur, you have a lot of CT expertise, and you know that in in, in terrorist groups. Often, terrorism is the strategic use of violence, isn't it? And and often that strategic purpose is to goad your adversary into overreaction that then politically supports your cause. And whilst you know, I can't I can't say that with certainty. And there are some cases where actually uh, we have to be careful because you know, in the last several years. I think there were moments where Hamas didn't want a big reaction. It did want to protect its position, build its strength, bide its time, and show the people of Gaza it was helping to alleviate their plight. Although that that clearly was what you know changed. Hezbollah is a good example. You know they too, as they become more powerful. My correct me if I'm, I'm wrong. I'd be interested in your view. But but there's a way in which sometimes if they get very powerful and state-like, they can acquire some of the caution of states because they don't want to give up their political power and their their massive arsenals and their position. They want to save it for a rainy day. They want to protect themselves. So so terrorism isn't always about goading that reaction. But in this case, I suspect given Hamas's decision to mount such an operation, to do it in secrecy, they did want to push uh, Israel into something. And ultimately, I think an, a, a protracted occupation is going to be a gift to them because, um, you know, it, it's simply not going to, I don't think it'll turn out very well for the Israelis. Yeah, I, I think I think that that last point you made is 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 very interesting. In in the when terrorist groups transition into what are also governing 
organizations and in, in you know both Hamas and Hezbollah are both of those things um and of course uh in some res- in some respects I think it it's it's simply a question of kind of resources that that there will be individuals and and entities that enjoy access to resources but I think part of that is also actually the responsibility of government um you know whether it's formal government or or something more of a kind of control of a certain uh, space you know forces you into this kind of pragmatic more more kind of you know uh moderating behavior and i'm not talking about kind of moderation in any sort of ideological sense yeah um but but what's what's interesting to me about the hamas case is that for as you'll know that you know for several years they've had this kind of uneasy cohabitation ultimately with the netanyahu government yeah, yeah. um and and of course there's been netanyahu's focus was very much on the west bank where some of his more extreme allies in government look at annexation and and increased settlement activity and 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 so the hamas being being something that that is in contrast to that and one wonders whether hamas were they actually playing a very sophisticated long-term game of sort of 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 gulling the israelis into thinking you know, we don't like Hamas. We think they're ghastly people, but ultimately, they can just take care of that nasty little bit of Gaza, and 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 will you know will will focus on the West Bank, which is a much bigger piece of land, and obviously in in the sort of historic uh, sense of of what Israel could be is 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 important. So I, I think that might have been going on, but I think we we need to talk a bit about the the intelligence failure because in a way that's what we're you know how how could Israel with famously you know the world's top intelligence agencies or certainly you know close to that, how could they have been so badly wrong? So um, the full picture is going, to, is going to need a commission of inquiry, and, and, I, and I look forward to reading the details. Uh, and so on the basis of the evidence we have available today, it seems to me there's an intelligence failure at multiple levels going on here. There's a sort of tactical intelligence failure, which is a, um, you know, a failure to sort of, of, of the, the conscripts and junior officers who monitor the border cameras to pick up anomalous signs, anomalous signals. But as you know, you know, um, indicators and warnings, INW is, is the word, you know, the phrase we use to describe w- forewarning of, of war and conflict. And it basically relies on monitoring the peacetime situation and then understanding the baseline so that you can spot any anomalies from it. That's very hard to do in Gaza, where you have this tiny strip, six kilometers across at its narrowest point, I think, where stuff is pressed right up against the border fence. So if you have bulldozers and people milling around by the fence and Hamas members with their guns, which is normal, that's normal. So how do you pick up deviations from that? It's not as if these are, you know, Russian staging areas near near Belarus, which is where you can watch them mount up their equipment for a campaign and say that is an anomalous buildup. Anomalies are harder to detect in urban clutter in a small territory where you're up against the border fence. So that's number one. Um, number two is I think the 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 uh, failure of higher intelligence here as well. Uh, and partly that is to do with the fact that political crisis you mentioned, which is to say the uh, huge divisions in the country and, and you know, military reservists were at war with the Netanyahu government. And the fact is that Israel's military intelligence capacity is actually quite dependent on reservists. A lot of the talent lies in the reservist core. Actually, as it does, you know, not to the same extent, but even in in Western countries, military intelligence often has a higher proportion of reservists, perhaps, than you would find in other military branches. For for reasons we can kind of guess, you know, in terms of the skills you would apply, they might often be in, in demand in the private sector. So that may have affected the capacity they had. The third thing is a political dimension, which is this government was focused on the West Bank. It went and did a major, uh, a major raid on the West Bank in, in the summer in Janine. Uh, and, and, you know, the West Bank was where they thought the problem was. So they took their eye off the ball in Gaza for, for, for some of the reasons we, you mentioned earlier. And I think the, the fourth thing is Let's not let's 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 give Hamas their due here. You know, they they've mounted this this abhorrent attack, but in the mechanics of it, I think you have to acknowledge it's it's pretty proficient. And I was struck by the way that you have these incredibly sophisticated cameras and sensors, uh, vibration sensors, thermal cameras, optical cameras, and what Hamas showed is 
um, you can blind enemy sensors. Now, by the way, this is kind of the doctrine of war that the PLA has been thinking about since the 90s on a grander scale, right? America's got the best military in the world. It's got remarkable IT systems and, and data systems. Okay, blind the eyes and ears. Take out the American satellites. This is a, a low, this is a sort of a, a, a less grand version of that. They use sniper rifles, drones, and other things to take out the cameras, the remote machine gun posts, uh, and other things um, um, uh, before conducting their assault, which is a fantastic example of blinding enemy sensors. Um, and then, of course, by, by overrunning bases, they prevented those bases from getting the information back to headquarters. But I've also seen evidence they may have used some elements of jamming, in other words, electronic warfare, which is, again, a very sophisticated capacity. But the last thing, Arthur, I'll just mention briefly is, on top of all of this, I think, first of all, there's Hamas deception, which is that they lulled Israel into that complacency by apparently by, you know, saying or saying on the phone lines that they knew were intercepted. You know, we're not ready for a campaign. We need calm. We need stability, knowing that Israel was listening. Well, you know, this is this is classic wartime deception, isn't it? As we as we know from our cases of putting false information out there as anyone who likes their Operation Mincemeat or, or kind of similar similar stories from the, from the or the double cross system knows. Um, the, the other side of it is sitting on top of everything is a conceptual political failure by Israel, a willingness to believe that Hamas wanted peace and stability, uh, uh, convincing themselves of that fact. And as we know in military deception and intelligence deception, the, the do do doctrine going back a hundred years has always been, it is easier to convince an adversary of something they always already believe than persuading them of something new. Right. So you, you deception typically reinforces enemy prejudices, whether that's, you know, Normandy attacks or whether that's, um, you know, sort of something, something else. And, and I think we saw the same dynamic on display here. Hamas taking advantage of Israel's political blinders about what they wanted to believe about Hamas's evolution into a more stable group. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yeah, I and I think that last point is so important because um, the, the, the Israelis' ability to uh, make themselves feel invulnerable. You know, we, we think of the Iron Dome, we think of uh, its, the, the sort of wider security measures that they've had. Uh, you know, there was a time 20 years ago, or ne nearly 20 years ago, when, when Hamas could carry out suicide bombings on buses in, in downtown uh, Tel Aviv. Now, that, that, that hasn't, it happily hasn't happened for a long time. So I think this sense of invulnerability, coupled with possibly, I wonder whether the, the ideological makeup of the current Israeli leadership actually, you know, basically has has a, sort of looks down on 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 Hamas and its leaders and thinks they're not capable. Thinks that they basically simply don't have the ability yeah. to put together a, 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 an operation of this scale. And I would but, add one other yeah. thing to that, which is Iron Dome. Iron Dome yes. has been a remarkable technological feat. This is Israel's missile defense system for short range rockets, um, but. It was saturated on October 7th, and I think Hamas fired several thousand rockets, more in a single day than they fired in the entire campaign in 2014, or almost as many. And I think that Iron Dome also gave Israel that sense of invulnerability. And the fact that it got saturated then, I think, is partly what explains this vicious, this um overwhelming Israeli response, because Iron Dome previously bought them time. In the last conflict in Gaza, the last air, air, air attacks... Israel could could avoid a ground invasion. It could focus on us on a, on air attacks because it knew it had Iron Dome as a safety net. If they feel that is now penetrable, particularly if, if, it has, if Hezbollah enters the fray, then that may also be you know have contributed to that that complacency prior to this conflict. So let's we, we we've sort of very briefly touched on Hezbollah. Let's talk about that now. We um, right at the beginning. 
when things were still sort of unfolding live on Saturday, I think a lot of people were wondering whether there'd be a war on two fronts, almost like a, a sort of a recreation in a different methodology of, of the original Yom Kippur attacks. That hasn't happened. There have been skirmishes, but in a way, there's often been skirmishes on, in uh, Israel's northern border with, with Lebanon and Hezbollah-held territory. Uh, what's your view on whether that is a real uh, risk it is a real, real risk. Absolutely. I think I've got to emphasize that when Israel fought Hezbollah in 2006, they were shocked by how professional the force was, uh, how well they fought, how much they could ambush Israeli tank squads. Hezbollah have improved dramatically since then. Their rocket arsenal's grown tenfold, and they didn't have many precision weapons then. They've now got a lot of precision missiles that can hit within 10 meters of their target. So not just terror weapons, but precision military weapons that can strike bases. And we, we can't be complacent about that. Um, a few things to say. First of all, uh, Hezbollah, for, 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 readers, for listeners who may not be as familiar with it, is, is, was a f- kind of almost nurtured, I'm not sure I can say founded, but, but midwifed by Iran, I think we can say, in the 80s. Um, so I- Iran's an important part of this. Iran, I understand, did not help plan and or execute this operation. There's no evidence of that right now, despite what a lot of people will say to you uh, from, from all the conversations I've been having and, and the, my own sources. Um, there are some indications some Iranian officials may have been taken by surprise as well. And the Iranian-backed faction in Gaza, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, the one closest to Iran, appears to have been taken by surprise. So the question is, what's Iran telling Hezbollah? On the one hand, they want to um, they want to show they are taking advantage of Israel's moment of maximum weakness, and they are not allowing Palestinians to be killed. That is, they have a sort of ideological responsibility to act. We saw on October 13th, Iran's foreign minister said there was every possibility of a second front from uh, if the blockade continued. Um, my colleague, my colleagues looking at Hezbollah, talking to Hezbollah uh, officials, are saying that they are um, they are making some threatening noises. He says, you know, they're talking about capturing the Galilee in northern Israel. They're saying they would they could destroy Tel Aviv. They could attack Dimona, Israel's nuclear reactor. They are they are issuing all of these threats, um, and we've seen you know skir- a few rocket attacks, a few uh, infiltration attacks in, in that way. Against that is the view that says. Um, this is Iran's jewel in the crown. This is the jewel in the crown of Iran's network of militias in the region, alongside the Houthis, Shia militia in Iraq, and, and Hamas and others. Would you use it now, or do you want to save it from uh, because it will get dis- it'll get horribly bruised and battered in, in, in a war with Israel, even if it will also inflict damage on Israel? Or do you want to save it for a moment in which Iran is seriously under threat? For example, an Israeli attack on Iran's nuclear program. And right now, my sense is Hezbollah is going to hold back, not least because there is so much American firepower now in the region as well, in the form of an aircraft carrier strike group in the eastern Mediterranean. There's the Royal Navy as well, although I think it would be unfair to, to compare our, our ships with the gigantic supercarrier off, off the Med. Um, and, and so in, in that sense, I think Hezbollah's calculus right now is towards caution. But I'm acutely aware I could end up looking very silly if, you know, two hours after we stop recording this, something terrible happens. So um, it, it, I, I must add that we don't really know. And it's possible that Hezbollah wants to wait till Israel wades into Gaza in a ground invasion, more bogged down before they take any uh, more steps in the north of the country. But it really is a serious possibility, which is why America's issuing these threats, saying no one should take advantage of this. They mean Iran, they mean Hezbollah. And, um, you know, if that occurs, I think that would be our, our surest path to a, a full-scale regional war beyond Gaza. Yeah. And so speaking of, of that regional context, uh, something that happened yesterday, Thursday, I think, or, or certainly in, in the last 36 hours, was that Israel um, uh, did airstrikes on the two main airports in Syria, in, in Damascus and Aleppo. Now, what, what's going on there? Because on the one hand, traditionally, Syria was, of course, extremely uh, sort of aggressive towards Israel and, and would, would fund all kinds of groups. But, you know, given that it, it is well into the second decade of its civil war, it, it doesn't seem to pose a real threat to Israel at this point. 
my sense is that Israel's objective versus Syria is to just contain the other fronts and keep them cool while it focuses on Gaza. We discussed at the beginning of this conversation just how gargantuan the military task was in Gaza alone. They cannot deal with three, four, five fronts opening up, West Bank, Lebanon, Syria, and then, you know, militia from other parts of the region getting in. It's just too much. It's it's overwhelming. Um, I think that what they were probably doing was striking weapon shipments, maybe on the way to Hezbollah or on the way to others, uh, sending a message to Iran to show they were willing to strike directly. Iran's foreign minister, of course, visited visited Syria, I think, just just yesterday on, on Thursday, October 12th. Um, so they're trying to contain that. But there is another calculation in Syria, too, which is Russia still in Syria. And, you know, Israel has to be cautious. It currently de- it coordinates its air operations in Syria with it, Russia. They don't want an accident with Russia. Russia has been moving closer to Hamas. It, it's not a it's not an ally of Hamas, but it's moving closer to Hamas. Uh, and it's it's kind of taken advantage of the massacre. It's, it's not celebrated it, but it has blamed the victims, really, Russia. And I think that the other objective in Syria is to make sure that Israel's very delicate relationship with Russia remains on an even keel. That is something they have to manage quite carefully as well. Yeah, absolutely. And and one one element of this, I mean, Russia Russia has an interest in chaos in a sense. And of course, uh, there's 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 evidence of online disinformation where imagery from uh, the situation in Ukraine is being sort of repurposed and and put out through sort of disinformation channels. Um, but. I, I want to talk more about Russia, but before we go there, there are the countries that historically have been very, very close to, to, to Western uh, powers and have a sort of unspoken alliance with Israel. And these days, sometimes it's spoken, you know, out in the open, of course, famously the UAE, yes. Bahrain, and Morocco more recently, uh, and Saudi Arabia. Now, none of these countries have any... Um, any sort of time for Hamas, they, they see Hamas as a, as part of a Muslim Brotherhood movement that threatens their own monarchical status. Um, but equally, that there is a kind of expectation that Arab countries will support the Palestinians. So, how do you think this is likely to sort of unfold? Well, I think this is this is such an interesting dynamic, and in what makes this dip situation so diplomatically distinct from previous Israeli wars in Gaza. Uh, you've seen a fairly supportive statement from the United Arab Emirates, which I think is really interesting, um, you know, which you wouldn't have seen 15 years ago, would you? Uh, you have seen pretty pretty strong statements from the Arab League, I'd say, but, you know, which would sort of obviously express support for the Palestinians, criticism for Israel, but maybe on a slightly softer note than in the past again. Um, we've seen a phone call between Saudi Arabia and Iran, which is another twist, isn't it? Because Saudi Arabia and Iran have also kind of got their own normalization process going on since having restored diplomatic ties a few months ago or at the beginning of this year. And and so they they also want to keep things steady. I, I think that the question for Saudi Arabia and to some extent the United Arab Emirates and others is, is can they keep normalization going or if this continues and we see large-scale scenes of destruction and humanitarian suffering in Gaza, will they be forced to unwind that process? Yeah. And the flip side for Israel is, is the incentive of normalization enough of a source of restraint on the nature of their military operation? My sense is no, it is not. The the impetus, the the the, the focus on Hamas overwhelms the focus on normalization. Although my, you know, I'm not an expert on on, on Arab-Israeli politics, and so I could be reading the nuances of that incorrectly. Um, I think that this is a restraining factor on all sides, but probably not enough of a restraining factor for Israel. On the Arab side, um, they themselves have been sort of mounting a long goodbye to the Palestinian cause in some respects. Um, we haven't even talked about Egypt, which of course controls that key crossing in the south. And 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 so overall, I think that um, they are going to be quite careful. Their criticism will be muted, but ultimately the dam will break. If we see a million Gazans displaced, Gaza raised to the ground, uh, you know, months-long occupation, it just isn't tenable for any Saudi Arabian leadership, given the beliefs and, and values of their population, to just ignore the issue or not not delay into Israel. It just isn't viable, I think. I mean, do, do, do you think, I, do you, would you disagree with any of that? No, I, I think that's right. I mean, I think at the moment, 
uh, Hamas is extremely isolated, sort of speaking on, you know, Friday, Friday, 13th of October. But but that could change quite significantly. And, and of course, we you mentioned Israel, uh, Egypt, sorry. And, and of course, Egypt is is fascinatingly um you can't say embedded because the Egyptian leadership has no no ideological common ground with with Hamas, but they know they know almost everything there is to know. And of course, there's even reporting that the Egyptians warned the Israelis that something was afoot, uh, which I find very believable because they 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 certainly would would have a level of knowledge that, that almost no one else has. And and Egypt, that's where you have millions of people who are passionately devoted, certainly to, to the sort of politics of Hamas. I'm not accusing people of supporting terrorism, but of course that the, the, the way these things are framed um, in, in, in media over decades, you know, changes people's perceptions just as they do in, in our countries. I suppose the other country to, to look at here is Qatar, uh, yeah. which of course is effectively is, is the bank account for Hamas. Um, and Qatar has done a, a very successful job of being close to the West, close to close to the US, uh, even having some element of of sort of in interaction with Israel. Uh, I wonder whether Qatar can sustain that. Um, yeah, given these events, and not just a ba- not just the the bank roller of Hamas, but of course also home to um, many of its political leaders. My, uh, my editor in chief Zani and, and some of my colleagues were in. Qatar just the other day interviewing a senior member of the Hamas Politburo, who I have to say came across as both a, a sinister and a, a comical figure because, you know, he, he insisted, um, you know, the Hamas gunman didn't only killed soldiers and perhaps they killed people at the music festival because they were lying down and they thought there were soldiers resting, um, which I think just is sort of both depraved and kind of there's just something something darkly comic about it as well, that that need to deny these atrocities. Um, and he also said he, did, he didn't know the, uh, the, the order for the attack had been given, which I think tells you something about the growing irrelevance of the political leadership in, in outside outside Gaza. It's worth saying for, for readers, or listeners less acquainted with Hamas, you know, in 2017, Yahya Sinwar took over as leader of Hamas, and he and his colleagues in Gaza, he, along with the sort of head of the military wing, the Al-Qassam brigades, they, they consolidated the leadership of Hamas. They marginalised many of those outside Hamas. Uh, outside Gaza, sorry, and you often see this dynamic in 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 in, in terrorist groups, don't you? With a, a political wing that kind of does some of the diplomacy when there's diplomacy to be done, um, and and a hardline wing that does the action, pushes for the bullet, and looks upon the political wing as kind of softies living in five star hotels outside of the conflict zone. In this case, since 2017, the political wing has lost influence. And to come to your question directly, I think after this, it's hard for me to see how Qatar maintains that balance. They will come under intense pressure, both from Israel and from the West, to cut these ties and diminish these ties. Um, they will come under pressure to expel leaders. Also, the strategy of sending funds to Gaza, you know, that's changed. That was with Israel's acquiescence, and that will no longer be the case. So Qatar's just going to have to reevaluate its role in all of this, I think, in, in the months ahead. Yeah, and 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 it, that's that's fascinating in its own way because Qatar almost sort of Qatar's raison d'être is to be the Gulf monarchy that that has has reached into those more kind of um, more militant and and sort of hardline groups. Um, I I think that this phenomenon of of the sort of uh, the the non-combatant terrorist leader, um, you know, becoming sort of uh, Increasingly luxuriating in a, in a certain lifestyle is certainly not unique unique to the um, to the to Hamas. Um, let, let's talk a bit ab- about the, the the wider picture here. I mean, we touched on Russia, and of course, all of this happens at a time when uh, the, the war in Ukraine is ongoing. In fact, some of your own reporting, I think, from about a month ago, discussed some of the challenges that the, the Ukrainians have have faced in their counteroffensive. Um, at the same time as which. We have um, America, you know, unhelpfully going through a constitutional crisis, no, no speaker, um, the f- funding for, for, for Ukraine cut. And we know that there will be huge pressure and, and, and it's already happening for, for, for America to support Israel militarily. So what's going to be the impact on uh, the war in Ukraine? I think that um, there are some trade-offs here. The weapons that America is sending to Israel 
are mostly different, but there is some overlap. So they're sending precision-guided munitions. I don't know which ones, but presumably things like paveways and, and other airdropped munitions that probably are less applicable to Ukraine. But they are also sending artillery ammunition, which is the single most important weapon system being you know in Ukraine today. And that will be a, a problem. That's a problem if they have to send large amounts. Although I can't imagine Israel is sending huge amounts because it's not as if there's counter-battery fire coming in from 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 Gaza, and the third thing is, which which could become more important depending on the details, is um, inter- air defense interceptors. Uh, uh, Iron Dome interceptors are irrelevant, of course. Ukraine doesn't have Iron Dome, but it does have Patriots, and Patriots are important because. Russia is going to escalate its campaign of airstrikes and missile strikes on Ukraine over the winter season as, as, that, as that approaches. And interceptors are a huge problem. They are running short. They will run short again. And if lots have to go to Israel, if, for example, Hezbollah enters the war, I do think that could be a problem over the winter. I don't know because we don't know stocks, but we do know that they are tight on supplies. So that's that's part of it. The other problem, of course, is bandwidth. You know, we know that in governments, even in, in the leader of the free world, even in the US government, bandwidth and, and political time is one of the most important commodities and the most scarce commodities. A, a Jake Sullivan or Blink, Tony Blinken, who is focusing on talking to Qatar, Turkey, Hamas is one who's not focusing on rebuilding Ukraine's army, re-equipping them with ammunition, with with thinking about the 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 attacks on Crimea, with the Black Sea Grain Initiative. Th- these are unfortunately realities that governments, even huge governments, are not equipped to deal with more than one crisis at once. And, and smaller governments, which is pretty much everyone else, really aren't equipped to deal with that. So uh, all in all, I do think there will be an impact. And then finally, there's the kind of political symbolic impact, which is. Ukraine's going to go off the headlines for a while. It, it just is. You know, look, I'm uh, look look at me. I'm I'm defense editor of the Economist. I write about all these things. I can't write about Ukraine this week. I'm I'm just swamped writing about Gaza, and I will be next week as well. So we are going to see a distraction from Ukraine, and it, that is bad news for Ukraine, given that the offensive is slowing down. Uh, it'll probably it'll probably. Uh, culminate within a, a couple of weeks, I'd have thought. And I think um, uh, then we'll go into a slower period over the winter in which Ukraine will struggle to get itself the attention that it needs in the West. Yeah. And I think what goes with that is, of course, um, you, you, you've talked about the sort of the practical problems. There's also, I think, a political problem in the sense that, you know, the reason that m- money from America was not going to Ukraine, albeit that there's money in the kitty that's still, you know, paying for, for weapons, but but there isn't a forward um, allocation, is because actually there's a political crisis in America where for reasons that, you know, are in some some respects hard to divine, but, but uh, you know, the, the, the traditional conservative party in America no longer wants to support um, a, a, an ally f- fighting the Russian army, uh, whereas I, I suspect I may be wrong because America's politics is so volatile. I suspect that supporting Israel fits quite neatly uh, in in some of the more hardline Republican sort of agenda, just as it also fits in the mainstream agenda. Yeah, I was in DC um, about a, a week ago, um, and I was there during the chaos in the House of Congress as they were scrambling to deal with the aftermath of Kevin McCarthy's dismissal as leader of the House, and that shocking moment where they opened the government, kept it open by passing a budget, uh, essentially um, by throwing Ukraine under the bus by removing a t- paltry sum of three hundred million dollars for Ukraine uh, to get Republicans to vote for it, and I could sense that utter shock right across the administration. It was really, you know, it was really palpable in all the administrative department because they feel they will get another package. It'll have to be a big one to avoid having to keep having votes and it'll have to see Ukraine through the election. But they know that something changed in that moment, that House Republicans gave up on Ukraine in that moment. And now even pro-Ukraine members of Congress, and there's a majority of them, even pro-Ukraine Republicans see aid for Ukraine as a favour to Democrats and the politics of the change. So the underlying basis for the strategy, as long as it takes, keep Ukraine in the fight as long as it takes, that is, I think, weakened and eroded by these events. And there are real concerns about what happens after the next aid package. And of course, you know, there are profound concerns about Donald Trump. If Donald Trump is elected, there's just a possibility then um, Ukraine is in serious trouble and there's not much anyone can do about it. But Europeans can and must try to mitigate the worst effects by beginning to think now about how to substitute for some of that American aid. 
Yeah, and that comes back to the bandwidth challenge that, that you know, that, that incredibly important uh, discussion that needs to happen in Europe probably hasn't happened this week. Although it must be noted that uh, President Zelensky did visit NATO That's this right. week. Few people saw, but I'm sure, you know, no coincidence, he's, he's, he's trying to remind people, you know, I'm still fighting a war. And of course, Zelensky, with his own uh, with his own background uh, in, in a sort of Jewish heritage, he, he's been extremely uh, sort of um, authoritative on on the effects of. I was I was reliably told he was a Nazi who who who. <laughs> so I, I, I'm confused now. Yeah, it is, it's very it's confusing. Very confusing. Um, Shashank, we, we've covered a, a huge, huge sort of um, amount of ground today. Of course, um, you, you, you write regularly in The Economist, your, your edition out today. Tell, tell us a little bit about what people can find if, if they get this week's edition. Uh, yeah, we have a great cover story that looks at the Israel-Gaza crisis in considerable detail. We have a long briefing trying to take stock of what happened and what it's going to mean for Gaza and for Israel. We have a leader trying to grapple with the politics of this, asking the Israeli leadership to think beyond the immediate crisis. How do you create the conditions for life alongside Palestinians? Uh, you know, the, 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 these are neighbours, you have to live with them. And to think about the past. I mean, you know, Israel invaded Lebanon in the 80s to chase out the PLO, and it succeeded, but it created a monster. It effectively helped birth Hezbollah. It didn't end Palestinian terrorism. It worsened it in some regards. So learning from our history, we have a great piece on Hamas, trying to understand some of the, the changes within Hamas and their political structure. Uh, and we also have some great um, reporting, for example, a colleague who's built a machine learning tool that looks at NASA infrared satellite data to track fire on the ground and distinguish war-related fires like shelling and rockets from normal fires and to be able to track how these things have played out. So there's a bunch of really good reporting from my colleagues. I would urge anyone to pick up a copy or to, or to subscribe, of course. Definitely. And I'm sure lots of the listeners will be doing that. So it just remains for me to thank you, Shashank Joshi, for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me on again. I look forward to next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Behind the Lines, particularly at times like this, with so much uncertainty and chaos in the world. I hope this podcast is helping you to navigate and understand what's happening out there. If you've enjoyed it and you're not a subscriber, consider becoming one and tell your friends. See you next time. Behind the Lines with Arthur Snell has been a Viner Street production. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.